Thanks for tuning in to this message. My name is Jared Piney. I'm the online pastor here at Pathway, and I'm here with one of our worship directors and online hosts, Maddie Seitz. We hope this message is a valuable resource to you and helps you grow deeper in your faith. If you consider yourself a Christian and this message blesses you, I hope you'd consider giving back to us at Pathway so we can continue connecting all people to Jesus and helping them become his fully devoted followers. Learn more at pathwaychurch.com forward slash giving. And if you decide to take a step in your faith after the message today, simply visit pathwaychurch.com forward slash next so we can help provide you with resources and partner with you in this journey. Hey, I want to welcome all of our campuses, those of you who are watching online. We are in the last week of our summer series, Breaking Out. And I hope that you've spent some time following along with us. And we've been digging through the book of Exodus, and it's been a great series. And here's what I want to do. I want to talk about three major movements that we find in the book of Exodus. The first one is this. God shows his power by breaking the people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. The next is this, God tests the people in the wilderness and he shows his faithfulness. And the third or last movement is God commits to dwelling in the midst of his people. I want to say that today we're going to focus on this last movement, God's commitment to live in the middle of his people. And if you've spent any time reading the book of Exodus, I want to be clear, this is a bad idea. I mean, I don't know why God chose to live with his people. Honestly, I'm kind of dumbfounded by it. When I think about how the people treated God, and I think about his desire and passion to live with them, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, but God is faithful. He's committed to this plan to bring his presence to the people. You know, there have been uh, so many different things in life when you think about leading people that don't make sense. I don't know if you've ever led a group of people and you've just been like, man, I I just want to quit. These people drive me crazy. You know, maybe that's the people you live with. I I don't know if that's you or not, but I I know sometimes that can be true. I've loved leading my family. I've loved being a dad. It's one of the best parts of life. But there is one thing, one thing that made me question my life choices. 
it actually brought out the very worst in me as a father. Road trips with toddlers. You know, when I would take a trip years ago, when my kids were little, and we would go anywhere that required some sacrifice. You know, you're putting some mileage on the road. It was always so stressful. You know, it, it didn't matter what we were doing, how we were traveling, whether we had a lot of gear or we didn't have a lot of gear. It was just a stressful experience. And I want to say this to all you young parents today. You're, you're kind of soft. I mean, I just have to be honest about it. You've got this thing in your car called an entertainment system, you know, where you drop the screen and the kids, they're, they're occupied the whole way. You know, that wasn't true for us. We were old school. We occupied our kids, you know? And, and it didn't matter what it took. You know, there was no shame. I mean, I would bribe my kids. I would beg them. I would plead with them to stop asking me questions, you know? Please just, just let me drive. I'm in my nothing box. I don't want to talk to anyone. I just want to make my way down the road. But, but there's always this question, you know, that they have about, Dad, are, are we still in Kansas? You know, Dad, is that cow over there belong to Farmer Smith, Farmer Jones? I'm like, I, I don't know. You know, they were always asking questions, always doing this. Now, here was the best if you could get your toddler to sleep, man, that, that was a beautiful thing. I remember years ago, uh, one trip we were taking, Cole was young, he was in the back seat. And you remember when your toddler's trying to get comfortable in their seat and their head is flopping around, you're like, oh man, I think they're about to sleep. But you see their head flopping around, you're like, they're going to wake up. Well, well, here's what happened. My daughter decided just to tie him down. You know, she's just like, tie, I'm, I'm driving, I look back and I'm like, oh, that's, that's brilliant. That's a great idea, you know? So there, there's Cole. You know, it really, as, as a family, you know, you wanted to make your toddler sleep because when you did, you could get further down the road. The, the miles just begin to speed up. You know, the stress of, like, dealing with a toddler, I want you to think about that stress and multiply it, like, by two million, and that's Moses. Moses is leading all these people, and it's worse than leading a toddler on a road trip. I mean, there's a point in the book of Numbers where Moses actually goes, you know, Lord, why why don't you just kill me now? You know, I mean, I'm so tired of these people. It'd probably just be good. Just just take me out. I've had enough. And, And God has been doing nothing but putting points on the scoreboard for the Israelites. I mean, he has been faithful, he has been loving, he has been patient over and over and over again. I mean, when Egypt came and they took the Israelites to build their mighty cities, what did God do? He flexed his muscle. God flexed his muscle. He, he had the Israelites experience his power. He showed the Egyptians that they weren't to be messed with, that they were his people by these plagues, crazy things. As you go back and read in the book of Exodus, and what eventually happened, Pharaoh relented, and he allowed the Israelites freedom. Well, eventually, the Egyptians go, man, we just lost our workforce. We've got to go out, and we've got to get these people back, man. We've got cities still to build. And they go out, and they meet the Israelites there at the Red Sea as the Egyptians are bearing down them. What do they do? They start complaining. Oh, Moses, why did you bring us out here? Why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? I mean, God promised them a spacious land. 
a land that was flowing with milk and honey. And he said, I'm, I'm going to give this to you. He takes them to the border. The spies go in the land. They go, yep, it's just like God said. It has everything we need. I mean, there's so much provision in the land, but we can't take it. We can't take it because the people are scary. You know, Moses has got to be going, do you guys remember the Red Sea thing God just did where he parted it, we walked through on dry land? I, I think we can take the land. Now, they, they continue to complain, and so God puts them in the wilderness where he tests them for 40 years. And they complain about everything. They complain about the food, so God gives them food. They complain about the water, so God gives them water. I mean, these people are whiners. I mean, they don't listen to God. They don't follow what God instructs them to do. And they're always reminiscing about what life was like back in Egypt. I'm like, really? Slavery? That's what you're remembering? That's what you're going for? Isn't it great that we're not like them, right? We're sophisticated people now. I mean, we follow God, don't we? we? We listen to God. We don't complain, right? We're grateful for the things that we have. Here's the truth. We are undeserving we're undeserving of God's presence. We're undeserving of that relationship with God, and yet he still pursues us. Despite being undeserving of God's presence, God is focused on this crazy idea of being in relationship with people that complain and that are ungrateful. I want to show you how much there's this story right before we get into things today that, that I think is super cool. So I want you to follow along on the screen. Here's what it says. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel climbed up the mountain. There they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there seemed to be a surface of brilliant blue, la paz lazuli, as clear as the sky itself. And though these nobles of Israel gazed upon God, he did not destroy them. In fact, they ate a covenant meal, eating and drinking in his presence. I mean, I think sometimes we read the Bible so often that we see things like this and we go, oh, they got to eat with God. I'm like, hold on. This is the ultimate VIP experience. I mean, they had a dinner party with God on a mountain. They gazed into the heavenlies. They saw God and lived to tell about it. I mean, this is an incredible thing that God is doing, his desire to show his presence. And I want to pause right here. And I want you to lean in. I want you to listen because I want to dispel something that we believed, a myth that we've held in the church for a long time. And it's based on a dangerous half-truth, and here it is. We believe that God can't have anything to do with sin. We believe that God can't be in the presence of sin. But this passage and the tabernacle, it flips that script. I mean, God is pushing in. 
God is not moving away from sin, but he's moving into sin. Sinful man to stake his claim. God wants to redeem those that are caught in the bondage of sin. I mean, here's the truth. God has always been moving closer and closer to sinful people. I mean, since creation, God has been doing this. Well, after they have this incredible experience, this dinner with God, he dismisses everyone but Moses. He asks Moses to uh, come up a little further on the mountain with him. He, he wants to talk to him about what this dwelling plan is going to look like. He, he wants to talk about how the Israelites can live their very best life. And so Moses goes up before God, and everything is going great for them, but down in the camp of the Israelites, you know the story, right? Everything is not going well. Here's what it says. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Check this out. Come on, they said. Make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So what did Aaron do? He said this to him. Take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took the rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it into the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, get this, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Anybody take offense with this? Does, does this irritate you a little bit? It's unbelievable. I mean, God has done so much for his people. He's been so faithful. He's shown his power. He's delivered them. And Moses is up there getting the blueprints for how this is going to work, how God is going to draw into the presence of his people. And what are the people doing? They're being traitors. They've sold God out. I mean, they're there creating this uh, molten image and giving that image their worship. It's crazy. God is moving towards the people, and the people are moving away from him. You know, it's been God's plan all along to uh, really dwell with his people. I mean, from creation, we see him continue to push in and continue to move towards his people. And that's what the tabernacle is all about. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Exodus 25 there. We're going to be there from 25 through 30, kind of looking through these different chapters. You can follow along on the Pathway app as well. But I want to talk about the tabernacle. And I want you to know the tabernacle or the tent of the meeting was the system that God created the culture in which he would draw his presence to his people Israel. You know, in, in this place, God would meet with them. And there's so much we learn in these chapters about the tabernacle. It talks about how long this tabernacle will be. It talks about how wide it will be. It talks about how high the curtain that surrounds God's glory will be. It talks about two distinct places. The holy place in the tabernacle where the priests would come and worship God in the Holy of Holies, where God himself would dwell 
and the high priest would enter once a year. It talks about all the materials that it would take to build the tabernacle. I mean, God goes into very specific detail about all these things. It talks about seven furnishings. Seven furnishings that God wants the people to build to reside in the tabernacle. You have the altar of sacrifice. You have the bronze wash basin. You know, you have there the table of showbread, the altar of incense. You have the lampstand. You have the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies and the mercy seat itself where God dwells. Now, I want to tell you, if you are an architect, a builder, if you're some type of designer, I'm sure you've geeked out on this part of the Bible. I mean, I mean this is so interesting because God goes into such great detail. He goes into incredible detail. But I also know this to be true. There are some of you, when they start talking about cubits, you just kind of fell asleep, didn't you? I mean, let's be honest. This also is a part where, man, you can get lost, you can get tired. This is not good bedtime reading for many of us. But I want you to know God goes into really immense detail so that he can show us the importance of this tabernacle, this tent of meeting, a mobile version of the temple which one day would be built when the people took over the promised land. And I wish that I could go into really an op- opportunity, I guess, to talk about each of these furnishings. You know, that they're all so intricate, they're all so important, they also show a foreshadowing of what God wants to do. But I want to focus on one. Before I do that, I want to show you, because I think there are probably some of you who have never seen the tabernacle, a picture of it. Here is a picture of the tabernacle. And it's hard sometimes to see, obviously, this in scale, to to be able to recognize, you know, how big was this? You know, this was 150 feet long, the tabernacle. It was 75 feet wide. This curtain that goes around the tabernacle, it was about seven feet high. And we do have these unique dwellings. You can see there in the middle that there is the holy place and the holy of holies, but the courtyard outside of it where the common people, those Israelites who didn't serve in the priesthood, would go and worship. It was about two-thirds of the tabernacle. And this is how the tabernacle was set up. This is the blueprint, the pattern that God gives to Moses. But, but I want to focus on one specific furnishing or a piece of furniture. It's the altar of sacrifice. They're going to put a picture up here, and I want you to know that God said this to Moses. He says, I want you to build this out of acacia wood, and I want you to construct it as a square. I want it to be seven and a half feet wide and seven and a half feet long and four and a half feet high. You know, God goes into great detail. You can read it there about how this is to be built But I want you to know as you look at this that whenever you entered from the only entrance you could in the tabernacle, the east gate, when you went through the east gate, this is the very first thing that you would see. I mean, you you couldn't miss the altar of sacrifice. You couldn't go around it. You couldn't ignore it. It was there confronting you. I mean, it confronted you because God wanted you to understand something. He wanted you to understand this, that coming into his presence, it would require 
a sacrifice. You couldn't just come and meet God. It wasn't a museum tour. You had to offer something. That's what God wanted the people to understand. Here's what I would say. The altar was a stunning reminder of God's passion to be with his people. It was also a sober reminder of the sin that the people had that separated them from God. God goes on in detail to Moses. He wants him to understand this whole relationship. So he says this, these burnt offerings that are gonna be made there at the altar of sacrifice, they're to be made each day. How often? From generation to generation. Offer them in the Lord's presence of the tabernacle's entrance, and there I will meet you and speak with you. I will meet the people of Israel there in the place made holy by my glorious presence. Yes, I will consecrate the tabernacle and the altar, and I will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I'll live among the people of Israel and be their God, and they will know that I am the Lord their God. I am the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I could live among them. I am the Lord their God. So make no mistake about this, God is doing this. This isn't anything that Moses and the 70 elders dreamed about, had vision for. This is God's vision. And this is the way that God would meet with his people. And God was saying this to Moses, when I come and dwell in this place, you will experience my glorious presence and know this, I am your God. And the one thing that I think we forget sometimes is that even in the Old Testament, God wasn't a God that was distanced. Once again, he was a God that was moving towards his people, and he was a personal God. But there was, once again, that problem of sin, the gap. Now, Isaiah understands this. He later has a vision in the temple, the actual temple that resided there in the land. And it says this in Isaiah 6. It was in the year of King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, look at this, it's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. You know, Isaiah realized something as he entered into the presence of God he realized he didn't belong. And it wasn't just that he was out of place, it's that he was unworthy. You know, Isaiah recognized, once again, this gap, the, the gap between the sinfulness of the people and his own sinfulness and the holiness of God. Have you ever felt that gap before? Have you ever come into the presence of God and felt like you didn't belong? I mean, I'm going to tell you, even understanding 
what God has done, there still are moments that I feel that. You know, maybe for you, there's been weekends that you've walked into church and you just feel like, man, uh, the weight of my sin, the things that I've done, I just don't feel like I belong. I, I don't feel like I should be here. Now, I've had people say this to me over the years. They said, I want you to know, Pastor, if I ever walked through the doors of the church, it would burn down. I'm like, no, it wouldn't burn down. But I do appreciate that you do understand the holiness of God. Did you understand that there's this gap between you and God? It's your sin. And I want to tell you, um, man, as someone who gets up and has opportunity to share God's word, there have been weeks that I felt so close to God. I mean, honestly, there have been weeks that I've done well in life, been killing it, and I get up excited and passionate to share the message, and it is awesome. And then there are weeks, honestly, where I feel the weight of my sin and I don't even want to open my mouth. I mean, the spiritual life is a struggle because we're still in this process of learning to be more and more like Jesus. And we don't always get it right. It reminds me of a prayer that an individual prayed and they prayed this. They said, Dear Lord, thank you for today. It's been a great day. I haven't been greedy I haven't yelled at anyone. I haven't gossiped today. Lord, I haven't even been grouchy or hateful to people. I want to thank you for that. Now, Lord, in a few minutes, I'm going to get out of bed. And so I just want to ask you to come and help me with the rest of my day. You know, do you ever feel like that? Man, like if you're in bed, everything is good. You haven't moved. You haven't interacted with people. You haven't had the opportunity really to get involved in your pattern of sin, but you recognize once again that gap. Isaiah did. It goes on in this passage. I love this part. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. You know, most Bible scholars say that the coal that touches lips would have been a coal that was taken from the altar of sacrifice. Isaiah understood this visual because he had lived it. He understood that when he came into the presence of God, a sacrifice was required. And I want to tell you that it really wasn't about the altar of sacrifice. It wasn't about it. It wasn't good enough even. I mean, the altar of sacrifice burned and sacrificed those animals, that blood that was used to atone for the sins of the people generation after generation after generation. You know what the altar of sacrifice was really about? It was God's way of letting mankind know that he was already moving. It was a foreshadowing. It was a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice that would be paid. Hebrews says it this way, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. God set that up. God knew that a sacrifice would have to be paid for his presence. And so he made the ultimate sacrifice. It says this in Colossians 1, 
For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him God reconciled everything to himself. Look at that. God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on the earth by the means of what? Christ's blood on the cross. Man, if you don't have anything that you can think of to celebrate in your life today, I want to tell you, you can celebrate the fact that God loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus to be the ultimate sacrifice. And it's by his blood that you and I are covered and our sins are forgiven. It's an incredible picture of God. And it didn't start at the cross. It started way back with the tabernacle. I mean, God began pursuing his people clear back, clear back in creation. And he kept moving through creation to this point where the tabernacle resided in the wilderness to where the temple was built in the promised land and one day the fulfillment of Jesus. And I want to let you know this, that when Jesus died on the cross, in that exact moment, the veil that separated the people from God's presence was torn from top to bottom. And God's glory and God's goodness came out and now we get to experience it. And here's the reality of it. We're not worthy, right? We're still the whiners. We're still the complainers. We still have a hard time following God's instruction for our life. But God doesn't stop. God doesn't stop pursuing us in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our brokenness. And when Jesus died on the cross, not only was that veil torn, not only was God's presence unleashed, but God promised to dwell in us. I mean, can you even wrap your mind around that? That God loved you and I so much that he said, hey, I'm not going to reside in a tent anymore. I'm not going to reside in a temple or a church. I'm going to come and reside in you. It's an incredible story. Jesus did it all. You and I have nothing to bring. It's God's love and was his desire to break us out of our sin, out of those failures that we've had in life so we can experience what it meant to be sons and daughters, to have a full access to God's goodness his presence, and his holiness. Now, I want to give us some time to simply reflect on that. So I want to ask everyone at all of our campuses just to bow your heads, and, and I just want to clear a little bit of space. You know, sometimes for many of us who have uh, grown up in the church, we've known all these truths, and it's kind of rubbed a soft spot in us. And we forget the power of the story. And we forget that God has been pursuing his people since the creation of time. And it's something that we need to recapture. And so for many of you today, I'm asking you to recapture the power of what God is doing. 
And I want you to feel it deep inside of you. I want you to be excited about this fact that God provided a way. He made a way when you and I had no idea how to even get to him. He was willing to cover our sin, our brokenness. And here's what I want to challenge you to do today. I want to challenge you in this moment to think about someone that you could tell this incredible story to. There's someone in your life, it may be in your family, it may be in your workplace, it may be in school as we get ready to go this fall. It may be a friendship that you have that you need to go and tell this story about God wanting to draw near, not only near to you, but God's desire to draw near to them. I hope you have someone in your mind, a a name on your heart. And I want to ask today, if you're willing this week to go out and share the story of God's love and His desire to be present in their life, if you're willing to do that, I want you to raise your hand right now. I want you to raise your hand if you're willing to go tell the story that God provided a way that he gave the ultimate sacrifice. At all of our campuses, raise your hand. If you're watching online, you can just type, I'm willing. I'm going to do that. I'm grateful. I'm grateful that we'd be willing to share the greatest story the world could ever know. And so, Father, I want to come, and I just want to thank you for all those that said yes. Those of us who have known the story of your redemptive plan for so many years in our life, I pray that we wouldn't be a people that would just hold that in, but we'd be a people that would be focused on going and telling others so that they can have the chance, Lord, the opportunity to know that you desire to have a relationship with them. You know, with everyone's head still about to, I, I want to ask this. Have you accepted God's presence in your life? And I want to remind you that it's not just about you knowing that God loves you. It's not just about going to church, but it's about surrendering to the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. It's the only way that you can have a relationship with God. And if you have never surrendered your life to what Jesus did on that cross, I want to encourage you to do it right now. I just want you to pray this prayer just in the stillness of your heart. Let me lead you. Father, I come, and Lord, I confess that I have been trying to make it on my own to you. Or Lord, I've just been simply ignoring you. But Father, I understand now that Jesus paid it all. And I understand that his blood has covered my sin, my shortcomings, my failures. And Lord, I want to experience what it means to be forgiven. So I pray, Jesus, that you would come And you would cover me, and I pray that, God, your spirit would live in me. I want to be a part of knowing you more and more. I want to experience your goodness and your glory. 
Jesus, as much as I understand it, would you forgive me? And would you lead me to the Father? You know what everyone says still about if you prayed that prayer for the very first time, I want you to raise your hand right now. I want you to raise your hand at all of our campuses. If you're watching online, you can just type, that's me. But I want you to acknowledge that prayer that you made, that surrender that you've given to allow Jesus to be the sacrifice that brings you to the presence of God. Praise God that Jesus has made a way. So Lord, I just thank you. I thank you for all of those that were willing to make a commitment today. I pray, Lord, as we continue to live our lives that we may understand the power of your presence. And I pray that we remember, Lord, that it's not just residing in a church or residing, Lord, in places that look or are holy to us, but it resides in us. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for pursuing us. Jesus, thank you for being our sacrifice. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.